Ladies and gentlemen. Welcome to the Real Mission Impossible show with Coach MJ. Are you ready? We search the globe for the most amazing people who have overcome incredible obstacles, demonstrated amazing resilience, and done the impossible. I said, are you ready? May the real life heroes of Mission Impossible from around the world be inspired, be motivated. Join, Join the, the real, real Coach, Coach MJ. MJ on the Real Mission Impossible show. Our guest today on Mission Impossible, Donald James. He's written a book. We're going to talk about that and get into his experiences in the National Aeronautic Space Association. And he's written a little book. And the book has really got my attention because you know what? Uh, the title says it all. Donald, can you hold up your book yeah, so our readers can see what manners really mean? Manners will take you places that brains and money won't. And as my granddaddy would say, ain't it the truth? Ain't yeah. it the truth? Yeah. yeah. So That's thank you for agreeing to come with us today. You know, we've been uh, chasing. I know you're very busy with all the virtual gigs that you're doing because of the pandemic. You can't do live events. But 35 years and now, hold on a second. One second here, Donald. Just, I got to take this call. Sorry, sorry. That's That's, not, no, no, no. <laughs> No, I'm, I'm on. I told you I have with Donald James, you know, the, the guy with, with math, math. Yeah. What do you mean you, you don't have a place to put it? Did you check both places? Both 49 and 50? Okay, <laughs> stick it in the other area. What do you mean which area? Area 51. Okay, thank you. Bye. Okay, so we just we just had to get we had to get that done, Donald. We had to get it done. Of course, of course. That of was course. my little bit for today. So there you go. Hey, listen, uh, I have a funny story that that reminds me of. So, you know, I get to NASA and I work there for, you know, 30 years. And then I have my big chance to go big time. And I got appointed to this really prestigious job. I'm the Associate Administrator for Education. And, man, I I work for the man who works for the president, right? So I'm, I'm this big deal. They call them OICs, official in charge. And. Man, I was feeling great. And so every now and then we have to have people come together from all over the country that are in my domain, all these education people, all these PhD types and everything. And, I, and I'm and i presiding over these meetings. And one day I had about 75 people in a room. And I'm presiding over this meeting, right? And this guy is doing, you know, some PowerPoint charts. And I'm sitting up there. And I happen to have my cell phone sitting up right next to me off to the side, my work phone and my personal phone. And I had them on mute, but I saw a call come through, and it was my mom. And I looked at it, and I'm like, wow, mom, like, never calls me during the day when I'm at work. You know, I'm, I'm an important guy, right? So I stopped the, the presentation. I said, hey, look, I really apologize, but my mom is calling I have no idea why, but she never really calls me. So just hang tight, you know, and I'll be right back. So the room was big enough. So I went to the corner of the room and I had my phone. And I'm like, I said, Hi, Mom, are you okay? What's wrong? Whereupon she says, Donald, I, I just want to tell you that I received your nice letter today, but a couple of places in the letter you made some mistakes and I wanted to point them out to you. You split an infinitive at the end of the sentence, and I'm sitting there like, Mom, um, 
I'm running a meeting and people are waiting for me and uh, can we talk about this later? So I hang up. See, my mom is an English teacher and a French teacher. Obviously. She passed away and long after she retired from teaching, she still corrected my grammar and pointed out mistakes I made. So she called to do that. So here I am and I take this slow walk back to the conference table and I sit down and I motioned to the guy to continue the briefing. And he just stood there and I said, go ahead, you can continue the briefing. He didn't say anything. And finally, my deputy said, Donald, we want to know about your mom. Is she okay? What happened? Why did she call you? So I had one of those moments where like, okay, do I tell the truth or what do I do? So I said, Gotta okay. come clean, brother. Gotta come clean on that. I said, let me level with you. I said, um, See, my mom is an English teacher, and she still corrects my letters, and she called to tell me of a couple of mistakes that I made. And the whole room was silent for like 10 seconds. And then when it finally sunk in, they fell out laughing. All of these PhD brainiac mess of people. I never lived that down. I never lived that down. And then after that, Every time I would write a memo or something, someone would say, uh, you want to run that by your mom, Don? Did you just send it to your mom for proofreading? Exactly, exactly. So that's my story of getting a phone call in the middle of something that I, I thought was important. And, uh, boy, she put me in my place. Yeah, well, you know what? It sounded like, I mean, you were taking a call from your mom, so that's already good manners. Well, where did your mom, let's get into your mom a little bit here on the show. Bless her. Uh, yeah. She's not with us any, any longer at the moment, but she's in heaven above looking down upon you and blessing all of us. So where did she grow up? What was her name? Yeah. Muriel James was her name. And uh, in fact, she would have been 92 yesterday. May 13th was her birthday. Uh, my mother was an only child who was reared in Atlanta, Georgia. So she came of age and Jim Crow South, uh, went to an historically black college, Spelman University. Then she went on to graduate school at Middlebury in Vermont, where she met my father, who was also going to school there. And um, so, um, and it was an interesting story about their meeting. You know, they were one of the few black people who were at that school. And my mom studying French, uh, the rule was she couldn't speak any English. So when my dad, uh, found out about this pretty young lady from Atlanta. He was from Philadelphia. He went to go talk to her. She couldn't speak French to him. And so in his bad French, he was trying to say, you know, you want to go out sometime. So my mom said that she asked the dean if she could have permission to speak English to him. So I guess they felt sorry for him. They wanted to get together. And so they end up you know, meeting that way. And then uh, my dad wanted to go to law school, so uh, they got married and they moved to New Haven, Connecticut, where he went to Yale Law School. And after he finished Yale, they packed up and moved to California to start a law practice and then his career. So uh, mom was uh, a school teacher, very quiet, uh, never raised her voice, loved her students. Uh, one of the things that impressed me a lot about my mom that I remember as a young kid is she taught in a school district that had a lot of immigrants uh, because of the Vietnam War. 
and many of her students who would come into the school would, would um, Americanize their first names because they wanted their fellow students to understand them better. And my mom wouldn't have any of it. She, she said, I want to know how to pronounce your name properly. I want to know what your parents called you when you were growing up. And so she always insisted on respecting people by calling them by the name that they were given and what they preferred. Now, if the student really preferred to be called Jim, she would use that, but she knew better that um, that, that was a way of respect. So to this day, I spend some time insisting on pronouncing people's names properly, learning about the history of necessary, and, and you know, as a way of showing respect. So that was my mom, and she, she loved to play cards. She was an avid bridge player. She taught me a lot of card games. And later in life, she after she retired, her favorite pastime was going to the local casino and playing her beloved nickel slot machines. And sometimes she'd call me up and tell me how she won $15 at, she called it her office. Um, obviously, on a school teacher's salary, it wasn't like she was rolling in the dough, but... Um, she, she was a very thrifty person. She was actually born five months after the Depression began, and, and so she was a Depression baby. So the Depression, the next Depression was always around the corner. So she was a very miserly person. But, uh, yeah, that's my mom. Well, thanks for sharing that. And, of course, yeah. you know, we, we get a lot of the ethics that we uh, grow up with from our parents, from our yeah. relatives, from our neighbors. Sometimes... Yeah. Tell, tell me about um, some of the television programs you that you think influenced you as a young boy. First, we're going to talk about manners, and then we're going to talk about a moonshot. Okay, yeah. Okay. Um, well, I was, uh, obviously, I came of age during Star Trek, and then later Star Wars. That was a big influence on me. Um I remember uh, watching a lot of, uh, you know, the, some of the new comedy shows, you know, Sanford and Son and things like that. Uh, we tried to keep our TV watching a little bit limited, but it was really hard. I love, you know, I love Batman and the Green Hornet. I, I love superhero shows and stuff like that. Um, but, you know, what really influenced me to get uh, inspired, I was, I really wanted to be a pilot, an airline pilot. Both my brother and I wanted to do that. And uh, it was because we were getting these weekly newsreaders in school, and they would some of them would talk about these new kind of airplanes, like supersonic airplanes and big jumbo jets. And I thought that was really cool. So that's what got my initial interest in aviation. Plus, we lived real near an airport, and our dad used to take us you know, around the corner, and we'd sit at the end of the tarmac and just watch the planes take off. And then he he was he got into the foreign service, and so we traveled all over the world, and so that always meant flying on airplanes, and that was always very exciting to me. So I think that kind of set the stage for getting into aerospace later. But my path was very circuitous. And uh, when you mentioned comedy, uh, do you remember Lucille Ball? Oh yeah, oh yeah. There was a great special that her kids did not too long ago about her. And I remember watching Lucille Ball and, and some of the snippets they showed in that special they did about her. You know, I remember, you know, the chocolate one where they were trying to sort the chocolates out. And she and Ricky Ricardo, and when Ricky would get mad, he'd always talk to her in Spanish. That's how you knew he was mad at her and stuff like that. But, yeah, that was cool. 
So the juxtaposition here is that I years ago did a TEDx talk and within the TEDx talk, I talked about sometimes the lies that we tell ourselves in society are not lies at all. They're fiction, but sometimes yeah. fiction becomes truth. Yeah. And uh, there's the, do you remember the, uh, in Star Trek, there was the communicator, the communicator, yeah. the communicator. Yeah. It was like a flip thing, you know, yeah. Kirk to enterprise. And so I use that in my example uh, to the audience, and that was influenced um, serendipitously by Lucille Ball. Really? Because connection on that. Desi Lou Studios picked up picked up a new pilot called Star Trek, and Lucy she thought that it was something to do with. Uh, going around with the U USO, which was like, you know, for service people uh, yeah, yeah. around the world to, to do yeah. entertainment. So she thought it was something like trekking around the world with stars, you know, so yeah. Like, yeah, I'm into that. I'll produce that. Well, she had no idea that, you know, it was a Gene Roddenberry brainstorm that yeah. had created these characters in this world and this future. So anyway, she gave the signing to okay it. Every other studio had said no to Star Trek. And she's the only one who said yes. And thanks to Lucy, we have all of this. And, you know, I mean, you probably would be the best person for me to, to unpack this and ask you, can you see any parallels between what Star Trek portrayed as particular technology or uh, possibilities and what you at NASA in your 35 years saw or or knew that things were being worked on. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. In fact, the, one of the most recent ones was the um, the tricorder device, the thing that you can wave over people and scan for their medical information. Right. I was working at a research center where we worked on that. We worked on a device that did just that. It was able to capture uh, remotely uh, uh, signals from the body in different ways. Um, usually they're used by, by physical sensors. But, but researchers were really looking at that, particularly for space exploration, where you wanted to just to be able to quickly scan somebody and get a lot of information about them. Uh, that was certainly uh, one of them. There's actually a group of people that believe we can approach warp speed. Um, I, I'm not quite sure I understand how you defy the laws of physics on that. But there are, there is a group of people, including the guy who was a former director at Ames Research Center, where I work, where they, uh, it's funded by some billionaire guy who likes, you know, uh, aerospace. And they're working on, um, uh, I forgot the name of it, but it's a vehicle that can approach the speed of light, but, but try to get, be able to actually reach star systems, you know, in a regular human's lifetime. And a lot of that was inspired you know, by Star Trek. But if you think about, you know, um, um, you know, some of the other technological things that were, were being uh, looked at and worked on, in many ways, a lot of that's part of our life. You know, the idea of being able to go in and out of a room and the door opens automatically. And I remember when I was a kid watching, I thought that was really cool. They didn't really have that. Now it's everywhere, right? I, was, I just went to... Um, I went to some place yesterday, and you know, 
that says the doors open automatically as soon as I got close, they open, as soon as I go through, it closes. Well, you know, that was in Star Trek, you know, 60 years ago, whenever it was. Um, the communications officer, and I had the privilege of meeting, you know, Lieutenant Uhuru. She's a very big uh, uh, NASA fan, and, um, you know, and she was, of course, the communications person. And a lot of the communications protocols, in many ways, you know, the, the idea of having like a air traffic controller for space is a very uh, important part of NASA mission programs. Uh, in fact, the former uh, a staff member of mine used to work in the space station program, and his job was to do a lot of communications with astronauts during the course of the day. So, yeah, it's, uh, I mean, I'm still waiting for the, the transporter stuff. I think that would be rather interesting. You know, how do you disassemble cells and reassemble them someplace else? But maybe on small levels for now. Well, I mean, the show, the show that we're doing together right now is called Mission I'm Possible. And look at all, think about these things that came out 60 years ago. You're right, Don. I mean, they were considered impossible. I mean, come on, the door opens up by itself just because you're near it. Come on. He's got some device with no wire connected to a wall and he's yeah. talking to somebody. Get out of here. And yeah. what is this thing he's, what is Dr. McCoy doing, taking that thing and holding it over somebody's head? Scare, yeah. strike, work. Sure. And yet, and yet, here we are. That's right. That's right. Yeah. No, it's, uh, it's always fascinating. In fact, I think there's either a book or, a YouTube that often does comparisons between the technologies that were in Star Trek and what became true and, and what is, you know is still challenging. But you know, I, I find that stuff fascinating, and I and I know a lot of that stuff uh, influences a lot of thinking for engineers about you know what they want to accomplish. So even though most of what they're thinking about is how to achieve a certain objective or solve a certain problem. But with the incredible advances in computing technology and advancements in those areas, it makes a lot of this stuff, you know, very possible. So, um, yeah, no, it's uh, it's cool stuff. I mean, I'm sitting here. I mean, you can't see, but I'm wearing these hearing aids that also double as AirPods. That's why I had to turn my cell phone off because if the phone rings, it rings right inside my brains. You know, and it's like, like who would ever thought? You can do that, right? And then I can control it. I can have the volume higher on the right side or the left side. I can figure out exactly where I want to hear things or I can shut it off directly. I, I can be talking to myself walking down the street and people think I'm crazy. That's because I'm talking on the phone, right? It's just going right through the ears, you know, but you can't see anything. Right? <laughs> I think some of the, yeah, I mean, some, some of the episodes that they, they've done, and, you know, these, these seem at the time maybe even a little hokey. Uh, when some of the Star Trek characters went back in time. Yeah. They yeah. went back in time and they were doing things like talking on their communicator or interacting with Uhuru or doing different stuff. And just imagine how how unbelievable, um, not only that, but frightening to the local citizenry of the day because, you know, there's something wrong. I mean, is that is that one of the gods coming from yeah. somewhere else? Or, you know, and that was always a, a parallel that was used by the writers to be able to crystallize the point that, you know, we have this dogma today called belief systems that came from somewhere. And, yeah. and here, here's just an, another way uh, to look at that. And, and think about this prop. What would, 
What would you say is probably the most interesting breakthrough that Roddenberry did with that TV show, given the date and time? I mean, in many respects, it wasn't the technology. It was the people in it, right? You had a black woman communications officer that had a, one episode of relationship with the white captain. You had a Scottish uh, engineer. You had an Asian co-pilot. I mean, he had he, he was into DNI before it was even a thing, right? So so that was that was really groundbreaking. I mean, you know, there was you know that was and this was about space. So it's almost like he knew that if you think about space exploration going forward in the future, given our population, that this is what it has to be. So it's very much a political statement as much as it was a technological statement, right? I, I'm I'm definitely in an agreement with that, and uh, you know he 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 hid uh, that social possibility uh, within our society in a time where forced integration through busing was happening in America. Yes. This show came out right, yes. and yes. and uh, the civil rights and all of this came out right, you know, in that time. So, but he. But he helped us swallow the pill because the show was, oh, it's not now. Come on. It's 400 years in the future. That's right. It was almost as if, you know, because it's in the future, you can get away with certain narratives without people assuming it meant about now. It was the same thing with the show MASH. You remember the show MASH? Oh, come on. Houlihan, uh, hot, hot, hot lips. Houlihan was that her name? That yes. Yeah. So in the program, so the the war that they were talking about in the program was where? Do you remember what they were talking about? I thought Korea, but I could be That's wrong. Right. But the fact is that was a metaphor for Vietnam, is what it really was. But they didn't want to overtly say that because of the politics of the strife and the whole Vietnam War thing. I learned that much later. That that was a very interesting, you know, you know, they, they, they pretended like it was about Korea, but it was really about Vietnam in many respects. And so um, I thought that was clever of the writers to, to do that. Yeah, I mean, now that you've now that you pulled that rabbit out of the hat, I can see the wisdom behind that, too. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Indeed. So it's, I thought it was similar with Star Trek, where you can try to suggest or say something without necessarily being overt about it so that, you know, people can appreciate, you know, the possibility of what you're doing rather than just sort of hit them over the head with it directly. So uh, today, for example, here's another one. We're, we're doing 3D printing for food. Yeah. Yeah. That's wild, isn't it? Uh, with a voice command, we can we can print food just like they could in the kitchen of Star Trek. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And there, and in many ways, that's something that NASA has been looking at and other researchers because of the problem that when you go to Mars for, for those distances, you can't just take up all the food you're going to need for the two and a half years because the mass is too big, right? You're going to have to figure out how to regenerate food and grow food from nothing and how to send up programmable things based on uh, limited supplies that are already on the ship, you, you send up a program that, you know, based on a just-in-time need that you may not have anticipated before. It could be a tool. It could be something you can eat. It could be another part. So these are all the things that, you know, are happening right now.
And something very uh, surreal happened last year. I was just happened to be watching the news. Why? And uh, <laughs> the the there was a clip, uh, and it goes, "Oh yeah, um, these UFOs. Uh, th- this uh, just got." released by the air force or nasa or, or cleared by security it's okay now you can see it what <laughs> what I, know, I, was, I was waiting i was waiting you know it was going to be any moment i was going to see the big the, thir- the the what is it close encounters i was going to see it third guy yeah. well th- this is where i have a lot of fascination of around and that is the labeling and the distinctions that we use. And I I write about this in the book in the manners context. But UFO is an acronym, and it stands for Unidentified Flying Objects, which suggests that if you did identify them and understood their source, they would no longer be unidentified. They'd be just flying objects. But we tend to add on to that term this idea that if it is if something is a UFO, meaning unidentified, like we don't know what it is, then ergo it must be some intelligent being or source that is the creator of that object or in that object or made object or whatever. Whereas in some cases there could be a perfectly good explanation for it. For example, There is so much space debris in low Earth orbit right now that every day something is coming back into Earth whose orbits have have, have, um, disintegrated. So just like that Chinese rocket that came back, there are other things that come back too. 99% of them burn up because of the intense friction on the reentry, but some things do make it through. Some physical things make it through for whatever reason. So I think sometimes people see that. They see the streaks or they see the object when they're flying. Or it could be um, meteorological phenomenon. I was just telling somebody the other day that I saw a photograph of a man standing at the edge of a shoreline somewhere. And off in the horizon, you see the horizon of the earth, of the ocean, where it meets the sky, if you will. But then there was a ship, a container ship, I swear to God, it looks like it was floating like, you know, 200 feet above the horizon. And you look at that and it's like, how does that ship float like that? I mean, it was like clear as day is floating. Well, it turns out that there is actually a meteorological phenomenon which explains that with lighting and the prismatic effects of refraction and things of that nature. It's just like, you know, when you... You know, stick a stick in a in water, and the stick doesn't look like it's straight in because of the way the light reflects. So, there's in many ways there's an explanation for a lot of these things. Uh, but you know, when the U.S. was testing secret aircraft back in the day, you know, some they didn't tell people that they were flying certain vehicles, and sometimes they crashed, and people saw crash sites or they saw things in the air, and a lot of this stuff has been documented. So, I I'm uh, I'm uh, I'm not a UFO skeptic. I believe there's a lot of things that haven't been identified, but I believe most things, if you peered into them, could be explained uh, naturally. And if they're not, then you know, let the aliens come to my house first. <laughs> Donald G. James, have you had to sign an NDA uh, with NASA? I mean, did you have to sign a non-disclosure agreement that you won't be talking about this for another sixty years? Now, when we when we 
when I was at NASA, um, I had a security clearance, and that meant that you know I had privileged information that at the time I I couldn't share. But when I left, I had to meet with the attorneys uh, on a couple of occasions on my ethics responsibilities, and most of the ethics responsibilities has to do with how I. Um, uh, how I worked for other companies back to NASA. Like I had to wait a year before I can, you know, lobby NASA for programs and things like that. But um, there's probably very little privileged information that I had that is, you know, so sensitive or classified that I, you know, couldn't talk about it. Like for example, I can tell you that we did test flying saucers in our wind tunnels back in the early 60s. So yes, we were looking at flying saucers. Some of them tried to fly, but turns out they were aerodynamically horrible, right? Now, it's not really a stretch for the ordinary person to imagine flying saucers. Just imagine a great big gigantic drone that you would fly, and you wrap around the drone metal in the shape of a disc, a disc that looks like a gigantic Apple AirTag. That's what a flying saucer is. You just have fans that you know are ducted if you will meaning they're covered and they're controlled and then the idea is that if you don't have wings and don't have tails you have much smoother aerodynamic surfaces and the air force was looking at that in order to have vehicles that could, could fly better than other airplanes and have low radar cross section so you don't show up on radar well i mean at the time when that was tested you know those were classified but they're not classified now so you know so not really you know, here's 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 just a, an observation. We have many people in our society today believe that somehow or another, a government or governments stumbled upon another uh, civilization, whether visitors or residents, and they have unpacked slowly but surely over the last 50, 60, 70 years uh, technologies that have changed the world that were not around for the last 10,000 years. And suddenly we have this um, almost a, uh, explosion of technology. And where did it come from? How, how is this possible? Well, you know, I having been in an organization like NASA, which has always been at the technological forefront of a lot of things, and I've seen the researchers and the work they've done on stuff that, you know, I remember the early the early 80s of my career looking at virtual reality stuff, 3D audio spatial stuff that was being done. That you were, you, know, you were an intern in the 1980s. Yeah, I was. I was. And so, um, when you invest a lot of money to accomplish certain programmatic objectives, many times those objectives can't be accomplished unless there's a breakthrough technologically. You've seen that famous cartoon where the scientists are at the board and there's all this math and these equations and right in the middle of the board it says, you know, breakthrough required here or something like that or, you know, so sometimes that's really true. So, you know, I, Look, I used to tease people. I said, look, if you're nice to me, I'll tell you where NASA hides the aliens. And then people get excited and interested. And I say, look, the truth is, I've worked in the government for 35 years. I don't have a lot of faith and confidence that the government can hide something like that. Because people usually ask me, like, you know, did we fake the moon landing? And I said, well, you know, 
it would be really difficult for a half a million people who worked on the Apollo program, and they did, to, to keep a lie like that from getting out. And I said, look, the only thing I can say to you to do, if you think we faked the lunar program, is to go get a telescope, and I'll tell you what size you need, and go look up at one of the lunar sites with your own telescope and see the junk that is still on the moon. And you have to decide who put it there. If, if we didn't put it there, then who did, you know? But at some point, like my colleagues used to say, it's not worth arguing with people like that. But you know what? I, it, you know, there's a lot of things that have happened that I've been surprised about, so who knows? I learned an interesting theory about aliens and about the evolution of life that I was really surprised about. A scientist, a very well-known scientist at Ames, he said, look, it's possible that we are actually all Martians. He said that with a complete straight face. I said, tell me more. He gave a talk about this. He said, well, here's my hypothesis. We know, number one, that Mars used to have a lot of water on it. We've demonstrated that now. Lots of water a long time ago. Now we're trying to figure out what happened to it. How did Mars lose its water? And is it possible that's going to happen to Earth, right? We're 70% water in the Earth. Is it possible we're going to lose all our water, too? He said, we also know that asteroids hit planets all the time. It hits the moon, it hits Earth, it hits Mars. He thinks that billions of years ago, a gigantic asteroid hit Mars at a time when Mars had what we would call the precursors to life, and a lot of that ejecta left Mars and some of it hit Earth. Now we know that there are parts of Mars that are on Earth, and how do we know that? Because we have found rocks that have no geologic relationship to any geology on Earth, and it has a lot of geologic relationship to Mars. We've, we've looked at it. They, we can't explain how certain rock geologically ended up on Earth unless it came from Mars. So we know we had ejecta that came from Mars that landed on Earth. And so his theory is that Earth happened to be a better womb for the evolution of life. So when this ejecta hit Earth and the pieces of the Mars came to Earth, right, then it be began to, over time through evolution, become the precursors to life as we know it. So therefore, you and I are actually Martians. And there you have it. And you heard it here on Mission Impossible. That's Perfect. right. That's right. That's awesome. And here's one more thing I just want to, as a parting shot, we're, as humanity, we're always looking for the next technology, the next big thing. And yet, your book, it's all about how you can get further and faster and farther with manners. Yeah, manners are not future technology; they're old-fashioned. Those those old-fashioned values have somehow been replaced by the shiny Ferrari and the "let me go." You know, I was in in a mall recently. You mentioned your dear mother, rest her soul, was a child of the Great Depression. Yeah, and I went to this mall recently here during the pandemic. Um, and I saw a long, long, long line inside the mall. And of course, in 1929, I remember the photographs, the black and white photographs. We all yeah. saw them. Yeah. Men were standing there. They lost their dignity. They lost their jobs. 
they had lost everything and they were standing there to get a piece of bread so they could go home and feed their family. That was the long bread lines as a result of the Great Depression. These lines I recently saw were people lined up for hours waiting to get inside the Gucci store. Are you kidding? I'm not kidding you. And I, I filmed it. I made a bit about it because wow. it was just way too much. And here we are um, looking at a pandemic where a lot of us have lost uh, people in our lives. We've, some of our lost homes, people who are listening to this program or see this program, lost other things, jobs, etc. Yeah. But yeah. the greatest lesson of all this is what we have is the ability to count our blessings. Yes. If we have our health or maybe we had an opportunity to reevaluate our, our lifestyle or to recenter our priorities and to really look out to see what's really important. You know, do I, do I really value an extra $50,000 in this account or would I really value being able to breathe better for a week? Yeah, that's right. And I really appreciate that you bring that up because I really believe that, and I'm going to go out on a limb here. I've actually never said this publicly. This is a, this is a scoop that you have. I think the work on matters, as I define it and wrote about it in this book, is the secret sauce, particularly for students if they're looking for how to have a fulfilling and meaningful life and career. And I would go so far as to say that's true for other people. The reason I say that is that when you come to work for a place like NASA, what I learned is being smart isn't good enough. It's not good enough. The students ask me all the time, what do, I, what do I have to study? What school do I have to go to? What do I, you know, how do I have to dress? How do I have to speak the whole nine yards? And I said, well, there are some things that I think you're, you know, you need to know how to fly the plane or you need to know how to fly the spacecraft. But I notice that the people who are successful in agency like mine and other people have other aspects of their personality and culture and manner and I view, I define manners broadly. It's how you show up in the world, your essence. It's your communication. It's how you speak. It's how you listen. It's your body language. It's your integrity. It's, it's very three-dimensional, right? And I, I say to students, that is something you need to cultivate because I've seen very brilliant people get fired who lose their jobs because they didn't have good manners. I've seen people schmucks like me who are B students who studied international relations, of, relations and economics uh, reach the highest level you can go instead of other than being a political appointee in the federal government. How is that possible? How, how is that possible? And it's possible because for the most part, and I had a lot of failings and I had, I exercised poor judgment, but I learned from those but I learned how to engage people and to be very aware, to be very focused and aware and mindful about with whom I'm engaging. And when I fell short, I learned from that. And I encourage students to think about this. And at the end of the day, if you think about, let's talk about the Gucci experience just for a second. I have a chapter on, on money and success and like, you know, well, isn't, don't you have to make a lot of money to live and all that? I said, I have nothing against it. But just remember, 
there are very rich people who are unhappy and depressed, and some of them take their lives sadly. I'm not saying they all do, but I'm saying many do. That that you know, if money made everybody happy, then why did Bill and Melinda Gates get divorced, and why did Jeff Bezos and his wife get divorced? They have more money than God, and yet they couldn't make it in a relationship. Okay. There also are prisons, our prisons are populated with very smart people. Bernie Madoff was not stupid. He wasn't, unless you define stupid as somebody who rips people off. He was just a criminal, right? So being smart and having a lot of money isn't good enough, right? So what is it? And I come from a very moralistic point of view. I admit that. I think there's a right and there's a wrong, right? And I think there's ways of connecting with people that endears you to them in a way that they want to help you. See, in my career, people wanted to help me. People opened doors that may not have been open for me, right? So in my money exercise, I said, look, tell me all the money you're going to need to just make it. Let's say I'm the magic money guy, and I'll give you all the money in the world, whatever it is. I, I've done this exercise a lot, and it's a fascinating process. Tell, give me a number. Just give me a number billion to whatever it takes you know and then once they give me a number I said now I want you to spend every penny of that I want you to buy something with that money it turns out when you get to like 500 billion dollars I had some people that went big it's actually hard to spend 500 billion dollars you know they like oh I'm gonna go back I'm gonna give more money to my alma mater or I'm gonna solve poverty all around the world so I have them do this whole exercise since they spend every last penny of that and then I ask them this question. I didn't make this up. I learned this in a seminar that I did. I said, what did you really get when you spent all that money? What did you get? You got your Gucci. You got your Lamborghini. You solved homelessness. You, your family. What did you really get in your heart from that? And it turns out that it's something that's not tangible, right? They got tranquility. They got peace. They got freedom. I have a whole list of things that I heard. And so the invitation is this. I said, so that's what you really want, right? It's not the $500 billion. I said, let me try this on. What if I told you I'm going to give you that $500 billion, but I'm going to put you on Mars with your $500 billion? What good is that going to do for you? Right? We have more money than anybody else in the world, but you're on Mars. So what? You can't do anything with it. The best thing you can do with it is to burn it to keep your spaceship warm. So the idea is to figure out what is it you're really after and then say, is it possible that I can create that every single day? Every single day. See, my purpose in life is to give. And it's not just to give to other people, it's to give to myself. And I do that every single day. And I don't need a dime to do that. I go walking in the street. I see a stranger. I smile. I say hi first. I don't wait for them to say hi to me. And they say, okay, well, I'll say hi back. I say hi first. Right? I get pleasure out of that. I see a piece of garbage. I pick it up and I put it in the trash can. It's my giving to earth. It's also giving to the person that's going to come behind me and they don't have to see trash on the road. I'm not saying don't pursue money or things. I'm just saying get your priorities straight and ask yourself, what do you really want when you have all that stuff? 
And why don't you just focus on that? Because you can create that without having to be a triple billionaire. Because doing that alone is not going to get you where you want. That's why I wrote manners will take you where brains and money won't. And you got to figure out where that taking you is. You know, everybody's journey is different. Your path is different than my path. But like Denzel Washington said, when they take your body to the cemetery, there is no U-Haul that's going to follow your hearse to the cemetery with your stuff so you can take it with you. Not going to happen. Not going to happen. Donald G. James, that's a great point. We're, here we are on the Mission I'm Possible show with Coach MJ. And here's the point. Here we have someone who worked 35 years in NASA to go beyond the stars, to think about all the possibilities out there. And what you're bringing home is so true. We are neither our positions, nor are we our possessions. We are humans being. And yeah. to be a better human is the manners that our mama would be proud of to hear us talk about today. The author, the legend, Donald G. James, thank you so much for being with us today. It's been an honor. I'd like to uh, get back with you on some more of those alien stories, though. All right. <laughs> God bless you, sir. I love the opportunity to chat with you today. Thank you so much. It's my privilege. Yes, sir. Be okay. my honor, sir. Thank you so much. All right. And, have... and, and my kids need to read this. My children. Well, give me an address and I'll send them a personally signed copy for you and the kids. I just need the names and the address. Awesome. I'll drop you an email and do that. Yeah. I get a new allotment on Tuesday and I'll ship them off to you, my friend. That'd be great. I'd be Stay close. Really, really honored. Thank you, sir. Stay close. All right. Yes, sir. Thank you for joining the mission. We welcome you to explore our next mission on Possible with Coach MJ. Welcome. Meet ordinary people who have achieved the extraordinary. Join us on the Mission Impossible show with Coach MJ. Like, comment, and share to inspire others to be possible today.